Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. You're listening to the New Books Network, and this is the Drugs, Addiction, and Recovery podcast. Uh, my name is Lucas Rickert, and welcome to you all. We are discussing colonial life of pharmaceuticals, medicines, and modernity in Vietnam. And uh, we're lucky to be joined today by Professor Laurence Monet. She is Professor of History and Director of the Center for Asian Studies at the University of Montreal in Canada. She specializes in the history of medicine in Southeast Asia, uh, global histories of health, and the history of alternative medicines. She's a fellow of the Royal Society of Canada and also uh, a co-founder and the president of the history of medicine in Southeast Asia. Asia. It's really exciting to have you here and talk about your book. It's a great book. I, I, loved, uh, I loved reading it. I'm glad to be able to be joining you in that very difficult time we're all experiencing. <laughs> yeah, um, as we're all sequestered in our, our own little spaces and doing our quarantine thing, it's, it's nice to get to talk to you about, about your book. I do agree. But let's, you know, let's start off, um, you know, generally and, and with you, you know, tell the, the listeners about yourself, a bit about your backstory. And I guess, you know, how did you, you decide on studying pharmaceuticals in, in Asia and particularly Vietnam? So actually, my, my background is in both colonial studies and the history of Vietnam. Um, I'm coming from a university town in northeast France, uh, where actually basically everybody was working on the history of France or Europe. And um, I wanted to do something else. Uh, it was in the 1980s. And um, I chose to work first for my MA and the political writing of Ho Chi Minh uh, in the 1920s. And it was considered very exotic by my peers, I must say. And, um, 
And then I decided to make a move and, and do my PhD in Paris um, under the supervision of one of the best specialists in French Indochina at the time. Mm. And um, this man, the difficult man, <laughs> knew nothing about medicine and health, but he was eager to have a grad students uh, who could work on the topic. And I don't know why, but I told him that my parents were both medical doctors. And then he looked at me and said, okay, the topic is yours. And obviously, and at the time in the early 90s, uh, there was no, actually no curriculum in medical history in France. So um, I self-trained mostly. Um, I went to François de Laporte and Marie Moulin seminars and talked, and they were just fantastic. And I, I think I immediately fell in love with the field. And then I moved to Montreal uh, for personal reasons uh, when I was uh, writing my dissertation. And um, in Montreal, when I'm still based, um, I met with the historian and sociologist Joanne Conan, who is at the University of Montreal herself. And she became my mentor and she gave me my first job as a research assistant. And um, she was and still, she still is one of the best specialists of the history and sociology of pharmaceuticals. I got a job not long after at the University of Montreal, but I kept on working with Joanne and other wonderful scholars uh, coming from various backgrounds and disciplines uh, who became my friends over the years. I was the only one working in the non-Western world, which was some kind of a challenge, actually. And uh, we had this uh, medicines as social object interdisciplinary team who that would meet regularly for more than 15 years. And it became my intellectual home, actually. Cool. The thing is, to stay in, I had to work on pharmaceuticals. And it is in that very specific context that I decided to work on the colonial history of pharmaceuticals in Vietnam without knowing, actually, if such a project would be feasible. And, uh, and it took me more than a decade and a lot of hard work and frustration, I must say, to finally realize that it was a worthy project. Um, but what I knew then, and when I say then, it's like nearly 20 years now, is I wanted oh. to follow into the footsteps of the anthropologists or pharmaceuticals uh, who had worked on what they called the biography or the life of pharmaceuticals. I'm talking especially about uh, Sag Van East, uh, Susan White, Anita Harden, and uh, their seminal paper, The Anthropology of Pharmaceuticals, A Biographical Approach, which was published in the American Review of Anthropology in 1996. So that's about it. That's my background <laughs> and the background of the book. <laughs> it's, um, so it's, it's been a, a good long while that you've been working on this project. Um, and I, I, uh, I, I was, it's obviously um, a really complicated and fascinating book and and I was I was reading it and I noticed uh, that various sort of interlocking threads were coming together uh, so one the history of colonialism uh, the history of Southeast Asia and then of course uh, like you said the history of pharmaceuticals so can you um, can you explain this sort of intersection for the listeners? Yeah, sure. Um, I think for me, and it's interesting because for, for me as a specialist of Vietnam, it's, it's kind of, you know, uh, self-explanatory, but it's not. Uh, what I can say is Vietnam to me is the perfect case study to, to look at the history of medicine and health 
um, especially in the modern times. And uh, what I've been interesting for uh, for the beginning from my dissertation actually is the medicalization process in particular. And uh, I think what I and I mentioned it somewhere in the book, maybe in the uh, acknowledgement section actually. I really wanted to put Vietnam on the map because um, I thought, and I still think, uh, it has so much to tell as a former, what we call in French, colonie totale, or total colony, uh, where the colonial powers wanted desperately to impose biomedicine. But it also, and I think that's something we usually forget when we talk about French Indochina, and especially Vietnam. Vietnam is a both East and Southeast Asian country. Um, and that's something very interesting because it's a place with a very strong and for some problematic taste for medicines, as some colonial doctors said, because Vietnam as being part of East and both East and Southeast Asia is a place where uh, traditional medicines and especially what we call Vietnamese medicine um, is, is a very strong um, medical system and especially a therapeutic system. Um, and I thought it would be a quick space to look at to better understand what I call in the book colonial medicines. Um, by colonial medicines, I mean not only medicines that were introduced and distributed by the colonizer, but also medicines that were generated within and redefined by the process and experience of colonization. And since Vietnam is this place where there are so many medical traditions uh, embedded, I thought it was really interesting to look at this, you know, uh, relationship. Plus, I mean, for anybody who has traveled to Vietnam, uh, it's extremely easy to see the huge role pharmaceuticals play in day-to-day -day medical practices. And it was particularly striking when I traveled there for the first time in the early 90s, right after the opening of the, the country. Um, and in fact, uh, then uh, already, I know that one of the questions I had and I wanted to answer was one of the questions uh, a very famous Australian historian of Vietnam and a great specialist of the history of modern Vietnam uh, asked in 1987, so just a few years before uh, my first travel there. So David Moore, it's his name, um, published a, a, an article in 1987. He, he's not a specialist of the history of medicine. Um, he's a specialist of the history of nationalism and Vietnamese nationalism in particular. But in that very stimulating paper he published in 1987, Mao called to unravel the mystery of what he called the popularity of, and he lab labeled them Western's medicine, um, pointing out that these medicines, these drugs, were totally absent or nearly absent from pharmacy shops for, for nearly four decades, from World War II to the opening of the country, what we call in Vietnamese Doi Moi. Um, to put it differently, and without saying it that openly, Mao was suggesting that we need to look back uh, at the colonial time and the colonial rule in order to solve that puzzle. And, and, and still the question like still haunts me. How can you explain that? Vietnamese people are so into pharmaceuticals and they didn't have any for 40 years. Uh, and so and it's at the same time, it's a, it's a weird question and it's a very basic one. 
But I thought I would um, go back in time to to try to um, to uh, answer that uh, important question. And also, I think uh, to get back to your question, what interested me the most was to write a social history of medicine, uh, to look at the history of medicines as tools and objects of social change. Um, and there, my, my main objective was to examine how and to what extent uh, modern medicines and the colonial situation, to use uh, French sociologist uh, Georges Balandier's expression, were mutually transformed. How were medicines shaped and incorporated into changing local health practices in the context of colonial rule? Um, to me, I would say that there were many medicalizations in Vietnam at the time, and medicines, drugs, became key mediators in colonial encounters, and, and even the site up for the expression of a range of expectations, desire, negotiations, practices, beyond the medical realm, actually. And I would just, you know, um, mention another important uh, historian, um, Louise White, who is an Africanist. And 25 years ago, uh, in 1995, um, she suggested in the paper, um, a wonderful paper uh, that was published in the American Historical Review, that medicines and other medical technologies, because they elicited seemingly conflicting discourse from colonial and colonized actor would be taken up as a privileged analytical vantage point on the colonial phenomenon and its legacies. So basically my book is a response to her call. And it's a very articulate and original and enjoyable response, I have to say for the <laughs> Thank listeners. You. <laughs> yeah, I, um, and as I was going through it uh, and, um, uh, reading uh, just this morning and, and yesterday, a few sort of, you know, core ideas, uh, little concepts um, sort of popped out at me. Um, some of them I knew a little bit about, some of them I didn't know anything about. And so I want to just kind of pick your brain about some of these ideas and concepts. So one that I wanted you maybe to t talk a little bit more about was um this uh, this idea of therapeutic pluralism, um, and another one might be modern medical culture, uh, and a third, I suppose, if I can, is uh, how you use agency throughout the book. So, um, can you share, I suppose, some thoughts about um, these ideas and, and how they fit into this this crafty narrative that you that you've you've created? Yeah, sure. I, I think one of the reasons I'm, I'm using these uh, concepts and this expression, I'm, I'm not talking about agency. Uh, I will talk about agency uh, later, but therapeutic pluralism, medical culture, I've been hugely influenced by anthropologists. But the thing is, for, for mo some of my anthropologists' friends, therapeutic pluralism or medical culture are outdated concepts. And uh, some of them, when they read the book, say, yeah, it's really interesting. So some of them, when they read the book, say, oh, that's a great book, but why are you using therapeutic pluralism? <laughs> do that anymore. But I mean, probably no anthropologist that I do, they're all looking for new concepts, right? And at first I was like, huh, a bit puzzled, I must say. And then, you know, I, I, thought, I thought back and I say, 
I don't agree. I think these concepts are, are still very useful. And as you mentioned, in a way, historians don't use, use them. They're not familiar with them. So mm-hmm. yeah. I thought it would be useful for um, an historian readership, actually, because basically this, this book is, is mainly for historians, uh, and it tells the history of pharmaceutical that I will use these concepts and try to explain why they are still, you know, um, important and resonating when you look at the history of pharmaceuticals in uh, in Vietnam. And um, especially, I think, uh, when it comes to therapeutic pluralism, uh, when you look at the um, identity of what I and other call uh, Vietnamese medicine, traditional Vietnamese medicine, and I've worked in Vietnamese medicine a lot in parallel, um, it's clear to me that Vietnamese medicine is basically a therapeutic system and that it, it was and it's part of many forms of therapeutic pluralism that still exist in Vietnam. Uh, so I wanted to document that genealogy, that colonial genealogy of therapeutic pluralism. And I, I still think that the expression is worth it. When I use modern, and I know that some historians don't like to use modern, especially <laughs> when it comes to, you know, talking about colonialism, talking about Southeast Asia or Asia. But I'm doing it on purpose because in a way, what I'm trying to do is I'm playing with two very loaded words, um, tradition and modernity. And one of the things I think I tried to do, and I hope I succeeded, is to show that there is no position between tradition and modernity. And you can be a traditional medicine and at the same time uh, being modern, being a modern therapeutic system. And looking back at, you know, what Vietnamese doctors um, uh, wrote about Vietnamese medicine at the time, they insisted on the fact that it was, first of all, a very, very dynamic medical uh, system. And at the same time, it could be like both traditional and modern. And modern doesn't mean Western. Modern means new forms of um, inquiry, new new sorts of medications, the scientific method, and they use that a lot, and they don't explain what it means, but it's clear in their minds that a vibrant medical tradition is actually modern. So I tried to, to, to play that card. Um, and um, one of the books that has been very influential to me is a book by a business historian, Sherman Cochran, who is a specialist of China. And he published maybe 15 years ago, a book that is called Chinese Medicine Men. And uh, he makes the same kind of arguments. It's not his main argument, but the fact that you could, medicines, pharmaceuticals especially, um, are actually products that are at the same time, or could be at the same time, traditional and modern. And he talks especially about what he calls new medicines. Uh, And he plays with old and new. And these new medicines are what in my book I call hybrid specialties. Like, you know, pharmaceuticals that are both at the same time traditional and modern, Western and Asian, French and Vietnamese. And because they include local substances, for instance, or their packaging is very, or seems to be very Western, 
And these hybrid specialties, to my mind, are the, you know, the, 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 the symbol, uh, if I can say it that, that way, of a very vibrant uh, modern medical culture. And there's no way um, we need to make this huge distinction between tradition and modernity or, or see tradition to be old, ancient, you know. So I think that's the point I'm trying to make in, in the book. As for agency, um, I mean, <laughs> agency. When you, when you work on, um, on the history of colonialism and medicine in particular, um, everybody knows the work of David Arnold. Um, and um, so for the listeners who don't know David Arnold, He's one of the uh, subaltern studies uh, specialists, um, and he has worked extensively on the history of medicine in British India. And um, when I was in France in the 1990s, nobody knew about David Arnold because nobody read English, right? Uh, but I had the chance to uh, spend some time at the Welcome in London uh, in 1994. And at that time, uh, David, Arnold's uh, masterpiece, Colonizing the Body, uh, just came out. And I remember it vividly, like, you know, uh, getting out the welcome and spending some time in the bookstores on Aston Road. And I find that book. I picked it up. Like, it was just out. I picked it up. I looked at it and said, oh, my God, that's exactly what I want to do, you know. And just reading the cover, right, and... um. I, I think I always knew I wanted to write stories about French Indochina from below, from the patients, the sick, and also from the perspective of the colonized people more broadly, you know, from the perspective of Vietnamese doctors, Vietnamese nurses, Vietnamese pharmacists. Um, and Arnold's book helped me understand how I could do that. So um, when I decided to embark on this project on the history of pharmaceutical, it was really clear to me that one of the things I wanted to look at was drug consumers, but also all sorts of intermediaries, traders, sellers, that official histories and colonial sources don't even mention most, most of the time, but who were actively involved in transforming the field of care and not just passive recipients of the colonial efforts to medicalize them. And that's where, you know, agency is, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I mean, I, I just have to say that, you know, to go back to your earlier point, mm -hmm. that tension between uh, tradition and, and, um, and sort of modern is so fascinating. Uh, and I, that's one thing that really struck me when I was reading the book mm -hmm. is that ba the balance between tradition and, and, and modern and, I also think that it's something that's really applicable to all sorts of different contexts. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, still up to these days, actually, you know, we are still struggling with this dichotomy between tradition and modernity. And yeah, I think it's, it's really important to keep on discussing this dichotomy and what it means and, and especially how people use these terms. Um, and that's what I, why I mentioned, and I, I use them a lot in the book, 
you know, how Vietnamese doctors used the terms, not just traditional therapists, but also Western-trained doctors who could see in a vibrant medical tradition, not only a tradition, but a modern medical system. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash NBN50 to get 50% off. Thinking about broad applicability, um, you know, as I was reading along, um, you know, this is a story about Vietnam and, and Southeast Asia. And um, I, I mean, I personally study the United States and, um, and Canada to a lesser extent. But one thing that's become clear to me is that often not all the times, but often the story of, of drugs and big pharma, the pharmaceutical industry, is told through the lens of Western culture, whether or not that's the UK or Western Europe or, or the United States, Canada. You know, that's slowly shifting. Um, but I guess I wanted to ask if you can say a bit more about some of the changes that are taking place um, either in your circle or not in your circle about how historians and others might be examining pharmaceutical histories elsewhere. Just sort of if you can give us an insider's perspective. Mm -hmm. Sure, yeah. Um, actually, you're absolutely right. Um, um, as I mentioned earlier, I think... Um, there was no colonial history of pharmaceuticals when I began my journey, which was, you know, very exciting, but very frightening at the same time. And um, there are now a few excellent references. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking about Guillaume Lachenal's book, for instance. Um, it was first published in French um, and is, it's now in English, too. Um, John Hopkins University Press two years ago, three years ago. It's called The Lomidine Files, The Untold Story of a Medical Disaster in Colonial Africa. Um, and uh, there are obviously many other historians who actually work now on the history of pharmaceuticals. Um, um, maybe some of the listeners know about Nandini Bhattacharya's work on the therapeutic market in India, uh, Noemi Tuzinho's work on toxicity in Senegal, uh, that kind of stuff, which is absolutely wonderful. Um, but still, what what still struck struck me, uh, and has struck me over the years, is the absence of a history of what I would call pre-antibiotic pharmaceuticals, as if everything began with World War II and penicillin. Um, and if you look again at the history of pharmaceuticals, which is, as you said, very Western-oriented. It's 
it's it's what happens. I mean, it's it, there's not much about uh, genealogy of of pharmaceuticals as we know them. Don't get me wrong; that there are fantastic work uh, being done. I mean, uh, let's mention Jeremy Green's books, all that kind of stuff. It's, it's been extremely uh, influential on me and my work. But uh, I think what was important to me as well was not just Vietnam and the colonial experience um, of pharmaceuticals, but also the fact that it could, you know, be helpful to understand um, what a modern drug is, what a pharmaceutical is. Uh, because, and I'm, here I'm relating to um, John Harlow Warner's um, earlier work or French historian Olivier Faure's work, um, the idea that between the second half of the 19th century and the first decades of the 20th century, um, there's some kind of therapeutic revolutions going on, right? And it's a fantastic period to look at because that's the period when pharmaceutical, as we know them now, were in the making, right? So... Um, I, th I thought it was it was really important to look at this pre-antibiotic era. I'm not saying that everything is going to change after the Second World War. I, I mean, in Vietnam, it will, but um, not in terms of the history of pharmaceuticals. But I thought it was really important to look back, right? And the other thing that, that struck me over the years is that, and it's also a Western tendency and a Western-centered way of looking at things is that we have had a long tendency to denounce what we call the pharmaceuticalization or the over-pharmaceuticalization of the global South, uh, you know, denouncing the roles of big pharma in Asia and Africa, that kind of stuff, problems with compliance to treatment, use of, of counterfeit drugs, self-medication, and so on. But we never look at the genealogies of this process, and we never look at the people who were actually involved in the process in Asia and Africa. You know, the people who consumed the pharmaceuticals, the people who actually produced them in these countries. It's like, you know, this process is once again a Western process. Yes, it is not a good one. We should denounce it. But nobody tries to understand who who are these people who are actually consuming the drugs over consuming or not consuming them or you know but and so that's something that was frustrating me a lot and i thought that you know as a medical historian i had a saying um in this and um and uh i didn't want to talk about pharmaceutical invasion uh i just want to see the 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 global South as, you know, again, a passive recipient of right. Western pharmaceutical. So the book also about that. I mean, I told you earlier that Vietnam is, to my mind, one of the best case studies, but it is a case study. I mean, we could probably do the same kind of analysis uh, in different countries in Africa, Asia, Latin America, and I hope there will be many of them. Me too. I, I can't wait. I'm, I'm looking forward to reading them down the road. Um, hopefully we can sort of maybe push younger scholars to be doing this or, or maybe so. 
Or maybe yeah. we do it ourselves. I don't know. Uh, so, you know, the one thing that jumped out at me about what you just said there was that um, there isn't enough work being done on the actual people. Um, okay, so that's not the case in your book, The Colonial Life of Pharmaceuticals. I, so what I, what I read was deep analysis of some of the actual consumer patients and the historical actors. Um, so what that required was, you know, a bunch of research uh, <laughs> uh, and so, a ton of research, obviously. And, and so your book uh, clearly was deeply, deeply researched and it blended all sorts of sources together. And so what I wanted you to maybe just talk a bit about um, is that process. You know? And the troubles. Yeah. The yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, you know, maybe you got into a bunch of trouble doing this, or maybe you had uh, some fun times doing this and gathering your evidence. Uh, I mean, but can you just say a bit about this? Sure. I, I mean, I had fun times, a lot of them. It was also a lot of frustrations. Um you know, I spent more than a decade researching the book, not writing it, researching for it, right? Oh, yeah. And um, anyone who has worked in the medical history of former colonies know how hard it is and sometimes very painful it is to go beyond, you know, colonial sources and discourses. And Vietnamese specialists like myself also know how hard it has become to get access to archives in Vietnam, you know? Mm. So these are the two, you know, Things I expected uh, before um, beginning the project. But the problem was um, when I first went back to the colonial archives in Aix-en-Provence in, Fran in France, I was so excited here to begin my research. I had a grant for it. You know, everything was perfect. It was south of France. It was summer. I was really excited, like very, very excited. And then, you know, I read, I don't know, Thousands of pages of medical reports and administrative, you know, things I knew about because I had already researched them for my dissertation. And I was reading and reading again every single day, thousands of pages. And at some point I was like, look, I have a problem. There's nothing <laughs> about medicines and pharmaceuticals. Nobody talks about them. What am I going to do? Right? So after a while, I was like, okay, so. Silence are meaningful, which is true. Uh, yeah. We all know that. The problem is, how do you interpret silences, right? Um, so, and sometimes, you know, there were bits and pieces about quinine in particular. Uh, malaria was, is, was and is still a huge problem in Vietnam, but nothing else, right? And I was like, okay, so silence is gold and silence is meaningful, but what do I do with that? And uh, so... I must, you know, confess I had moments of despair. Sure, yeah. <laughs> and, um, but then I realized, okay, uh, I have to find alternative sources. And I think I use that expression in the book, not alternative in, in the way that they are less meaningful or less important, but sources that um, specialists of colonial Vietnam don't know. We, we are always obsessed with the colonial archives, but there are so many uh, different um, sources about the history of Vietnam we, we usually overlook, right? So 
silences and this idea that I could find alternative sources. And again, it's in theory, it's great. You know, I'm going to work on the silences. I'm going, I'm going to find alternative sources. But then again, there was like, okay, yeah, that's good. But what kind of sources, right? <laughs> so that's why it took me uh, a decade. I mean, I had to find, look for legal commercial documentation, for instance. I had to go back to uh, scientific literature, medical journals to see if there were some kind of information about drugs that were distributed in the hospitals or experimented. I tried to find, you know, information about budgets, uh, regarding medicines, that kind of thing. So I'm not going to give you the list of alternative oh, no. um, sources, but one, one I found was absolutely wonderful and still is and i'm still using it is um these uh health magazines that were actually published um in interwar vietnam in vietnamese um whoever you know works in the history of vietnam knows that it's a place uh for magazines and journals um and uh, we all know that uh, most of the specialists of Vietnam have looked at these magazines and journalists through the lens of the nationalized, na nationalized discourse and how actually these magazines and journals uh, help us understand uh, the history of nationalism, the history of communism, especially in Vietnam. But nobody had ever looked at these uh, journals and magazines through the lens of medicine and health. And so, and it's, again, why it took me so long, because there are so many of them in Vietnamese, and sometimes, you know, it's hard to understand. Um, yeah. And so I spent, like, I would say, like, three to four years uh, with the help of some research assistants, some grad students, and um, I basically, like, read them, like, 10, 15 of them, including, like, these health magazines that were published, not a lot of them, but maybe half a dozen, uh, especially in the 1930s. And, um, and it was just fascinating because of the ads that are in them, lots of them, lots of ads for pharmacies, pharmacists, but also for pharmaceuticals. And also because one of them is just the most amazing source, there are some um virtual consultation if i can say uh, um so patient would send letters uh to the editor-in-chief who was a medical doctor western trained and they would talk about their ailments their pains and the drugs they were taking or willing to take and looking for his advice and he would send back information and and that was just fascinating because yeah. it was the best way actually to see that Drugs and pharmaceuticals were all over in Vietnam in the 1930s. And that part of the population, obviously, the one who could read and send a letter to that magazine. But these people often knew the pharmaceuticals by their name, their training. So there was this familiarity with drugs, and especially Western drugs, that I had no idea of, and that colonial sources didn't you know, mention anywhere. So that was so fascinating because I had, you know, all these silences um, on one part and 
these fascinating accounts coming from below, from these patients, these Vietnamese patients, or these pharmacists advertising the product in the press. And it was just, you know, I, I had to find a way to put all these sources together and try to um, interpret them all together. And I think that's what I, I tried to, to do in the book. And that's also why it took so long, actually. <laughs> well, I mean, it was worth the wait. Um, could, um, <laughs> my, Rose, my next question has to do, I guess, kind of relatedly um, to, you know, what some of your favorite bits or anecdotes are from the book. I mean, you talking about this one particular source mm-hmm. is pretty cool. I mean, to get yeah. that back and back and forth. But did you have uh, some other sort of things that you, you really need to share with listeners, some of your favorite parts? <laughs> yeah, so you, you clearly this magazine and his editor-in-chief, his name is uh, Nguyen Van Nguyen. Um, I, I really enjoyed working with them in a way, you know, working with them. He's been, he's been dead for quite some time. He, he actually died uh, in the early 1940s. Um, but it was this great, you know, um clinician um talking about uh, essential medicines for the people he uses the word essential medicine in the 1930s i mean it's just amazing right and uh the anecdote <laughs> i think the people who actually read the book don't see that that well but one of the things i did um you know whenever I found some bits and pieces on drugs, pharmaceuticals. I would put them in a database, right? Um, one biography uh, for each drug, medicine, substance I could find because I had no idea how many pharmaceuticals were involved, actually, you know? Because it's it's the thing to say, okay, so Vietnamese people love Western pharmaceuticals, but what kind of drugs are we talking about? How many of them, right? And in the end, the database, I think, includes maybe a thousand, a bit more than a thousand, um, you know, uh, biographies. Uh, Some of them are very sketchy. Some of them are pretty interesting. But uh, in parallel to that pharmaceutical database, I decided to um, actually build uh, databases on pharmacists and, and medical doctors, Vietnamese pharmacists and medical doctors, because I thought it would be interesting to point out their uh, specific role um, in the this early pharmaceuticalization. And as you probably know, in Vietnam, uh, the vast majority of the population, uh, 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 the name is Nguyen, right? And so when you look for information about doctors and pharmacists, you kind of think like everybody has the same name. And in the end, you don't know how many of them. Uh, they are right, and so I I try to identify all these doctors and pharmacists, and before beginning that database, I was pretty sure there were only like ten or fifteen Vietnamese pharmacists working in Vietnam before 1940, and maybe a hundred medical doctors. Right in the end, in my database for medical doctors, and most of them, yes, have Nguyen as their surname. Uh, I have, I think. 500 of them and I have like 200 pharmacists so this project also you know helped me reveal something I was really interested in beyond these pharmaceuticals is the role of 
you know, healthcare professionals, Vietnamese healthcare professionals, uh, before Second World War and, and the, the, the process of, you know, uh, giving access to, uh, to care, to medical care to the Vietnamese population. Fascinating. It's, you know, it's, I guess, like some of the, the beginning parts of the research. And then at the end, we, we have sort of different perspectives for sure. Yeah, but, absolutely. Um, yeah. So I guess we're getting close. I don't want to take up too much more of your time. Um, and I thank you, but I, I, I got to ask, you know, <laughs> what's next? What, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 10 years working on this book. So yeah. <laughs> what's, um, no, I'm not going to spend another 10 years on a project, although um, I'm working these days on uh, the Easter of measles. Um, I've had this project with a colleague of mine at uh, University of Waterloo, Ontario, Canada. Uh, this project deals with the anti-vaccination and measles in Canada since the 1960s. And yes, I also work in Canada <laughs> from time to time. <laughs> Um, and uh, so um, measles, I've published a book, uh, so it didn't take me 10 years to do so, on the last uh, <laughs> measles outbreak in Quebec in uh, 1989 uh, to uh, better understand the relationship between vaccination and measles and, um, and understand in particular what anti-vaccination really means and try to historicize what we call these days uh, vaccine hesitancy. Um, so yeah. this project on uh, anti-vaccination and measles in Canada, um, and we actually uh, are with my colleague uh, Heather McDougall at Waterloo. We are currently writing a book uh, on vaccination policies and measles uh, in Canada that should be published, I hope, uh, within the next couple of years. Um, and uh, in parallel, I have this new project, which is also about measles. I'm, it might take a decade. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, want to, I want to write the first global history of measles. Um, so that's something I can't do by myself. Uh, so I've actually asked um, and half a dozen uh, colleagues, historians, friends, um, including Kevita Savarakrishman, Robert Pekam in Hong Kong. And we are actually picking um, case studies all over the world and uh, trying to, um, through a few, you know, um, topics related to measles, including genotyping, vaccination, of course, um, that kind of thing. We're trying to, yeah, build the first global history of measles. Um, so for that project, uh, I have a huge grant for four or five years, I think. And I'm covering not Vietnam this time, uh, but Cambodia and Laos. Um, I had worked on Cambodia and Laos for my dissertation, and I was eager to go back there, <laughs> first of all, and travel there. I hope I'm, I'm, I'll be able to do that <laughs> soon again. Yeah. Um, but I thought it would be really interesting to look back at these two small countries we don't talk about much, um, especially Cambodia, because uh, Cambodia has officially eliminated measles five years ago. So uh, it's pretty impressive uh, for yeah. this post-genocide um, country. And uh, not long ago, there were no doctors, no vaccinators in, in Cambodia, right? So the idea that the country has eliminated um, measles, it just fascinates me. So 
So I'm doing field work, uh, mostly all history, uh, anthropological field work, because there are no archives in Cambodia and Laos I can get access to dealing with measles. But it's it's very exciting. Yeah, uh, it's it's a new project, but I'm very excited about it. And again, uh, hopefully, I'll be able to travel again at some point and uh, go on with the with this project. Well, those projects sound amazing, uh, and I look forward to to reading that work in the future. But for now, um, I wanted to recommend that um, listeners pick up uh, and read a copy of the Colonial Life of Pharmaceuticals. Medicines, Modernity in Vietnam, published by Cambridge University Press in 2019. Uh, and Laurence, thanks so much for taking the time to, to talk to me about this book, um, which is uh, itself innovative um, and, and enjoyable. So thanks so much. Thank you. Something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, only by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.